and welcome to Map Bites, episode 104. I'm Elaine Charles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Well, first, fantastic to hear from so many of you after the surprise appearance of the last show. First up was Paul. We got an email. Delighted that there's a new show. Can't read the notes until I've listened. Much love. Live stream Paul. And Paul came along on Monday to the Map Bites Live. But wait for it. Left early. Go to a party. I mean, seriously, Matt Bites Live or a party? No brainer, surely. Uh, I'd have thought so. Well, we're letting him off since he was the guest of honour at said party. Anyway, great to hear from you and to share the live event with you too. And he wasn't the only one. Johnny I. No, not that one. The much cooler one. You mean Mummy Eye's pride and joy. That's the one. Let's just say he was somewhat overwhelmed by the sudden and unexpected arrival of a MacBites. Happy. Oh, very. And then, I mentioned next week. Here with next week. And talking of next week. Minster. It's always a good day when we can surprise Minster. And we certainly did. Oh, we did. He said, you could have knocked me down with a feather when I saw my podcast feed. Great to have you guys back. You had me laughing out loud within the first few minutes. Normal services resumed. And I'm sure I heard next week mentioned. Great to hear from you too, Minster. So, we've now got to do our trademarked ultra-fast roundup of all things WWDC. Now, we know every Mac podcast on the planet has analysed every nanosecond of said event, and you are beyond saturation point with it. So? Are you ready? Meh. Yeah, I think that about covers it. Ooh, how harsh are we? It started okay. There was a very nice tribute to all the Orlando victims. And then it went downhill from there. There was a revolving door of presenters. I mean, seriously, there were 16 changes during that keynote. And I don't know about you, I thought many sections were a bit under-rehearsed. Eddie Q was glued to his auto-cue. I mean, literally, glued to it. And he still made mistakes. Yes, there's a song in there somewhere about can't take my eyes off auto-cue, but I won't sing it. No, please don't. And then... There was the reenactment of the 1989 Brit Awards with Sam Fox and Mick Fleetwood. Uh, some of our international listeners will have no clue what you're talking about. Oh, come on, come on. It's legendary. I looked for it on YouTube. I wondered if the whole horrific episode had been captured, but all I could find was a short clip. It was long enough to get an idea of just how bad it actually was, though, so I've put a link in the show notes. It's worth a look if you've never seen it. It's probably worth a look even if you have. It is actually, as um, 89, I think I was at university, obviously at a very early age. It was, it was worse than I remember. <laughs> it was, it was terrible. There was awkward pauses. There was even longer complete silences. The tech failed. Just think this keynote with that musicy thing demo, but worse. Anyway, back to Apple. Um, strange choice of what to show and what to leave out. They either, the bits that they left out, they either put in other shows or they actually left it out altogether and there was like a press release. And some of that stuff will make a huge difference, like the changes to the underlying file system. Whole new system coming in 2017, the Apple file system. So to focus on consumer gimmicks like those pyrotechnic backgrounds for texts seemed odd to me for a conference that was aimed at developers. One of the best bits for me was raising the iPhone to wake it. I thought that's handy when I wake up in the middle of the night and I want to see the time. You know, I wake, it wakes. But the best bit for you surely must have been... Oh, Game Centre is dead. Game Centre is dead. Long live Game Kit. Ah, crap! My sentiments exactly. Then there was the post-event coverage, concentrating on... Yes, wait for it. I was looking for tech as well. How many women were on the stage at various points in the presentation? Really? Women will have made it when the fact that they're actually on stage during the keynote doesn't warrant a dedicated article praising Apple for their inclusion. I couldn't believe it. Do you remember the fuss when Jackie Oakley was the first woman to commentate on a match or match of the day? I do. It was back in 2007. And, you know, it was a huge thing at the time. And I thought, oh, seriously, because now it's just so commonplace, doesn't warrant a mention, much less a sensationalist piece drawing attention to her gender. 
It's as bad as pointing at the bearded lady. Oh, look, a woman on stage. My attitude was move along nothing to see. They should use the people who are the best ones to demonstrate it. And some of those people on stage were great and some of them. This time, I didn't think they were so great. Got nothing to do with what gender they are, though. I did, however, learn something while perusing the voluminous commentary online following the keynote. It was one of the pieces about, wait for it, women in the stage area. And it called Craig a DILF. A DILF. A DILF. Checking my sources for what DILF means. Okay, I found this on the web for what DILF means. Hold it right there, partner. Moving swiftly along. Yes, I think we probably should. Um, this time it was you. What was me? WWDC wasn't the only Apple fiasco of the week, was it? No, it wasn't. I was redeeming vouchers via the camera on my iMac, and whilst I was doing so, a message flashed up so fast I couldn't read it. And then iTunes completely froze, and it was stuck on the camera page. It was completely unresponsive. I tried the same voucher again, and then it said the voucher had already been redeemed. Trouble was, the balance wasn't confirming that. So I figured I'd have to contact Apple support with a screenshot. And at that point, I realised that I had to go and put some clothes on. Stop right there. You mean, you were redeeming iTunes vouchers in the nude? Ooh. Unexpected naked person in the viewfinder area. When you've all finished, I just didn't have a shirt on. It was warm. Well, so you say. I'll admit, I was somewhat warm when I saw him. Temperature warning. Your iPhone needs to cool down before you can use it. And me, well, I fell on my sword to help you. I attempted to add a voucher via the camera on my MacBook Air. Same thing happened. Please tell me you weren't naked too. No, I wasn't. But it proved it wasn't just an isolated incident. And I found advice straight from Apple. Wait for it. Log out and back in again. Genius. Turn it off and turn it on again. On the upside, it did work though. But I just wonder how muggles cope. There's friends we've got and they're a lot less savvy with their tech, but they still want to use it. And on recent form, they've probably got a bricked iPhone, a bricked iPad and a collection of iTunes vouchers that just refuse to activate. Mm, sounds great. So, of course, I then had to go through the process a second time and a third time and a fourth time. Logging out, logging in, logging out, logging in. And by the time I got to the end, I felt like taking off more than just my shirt. On the other hand, had an excellent experience with customer service this week. That makes a change. My thoughts exactly. I heard from Storm Gorelli he was trying to read my ScreenFlow review via Pocket. You know that uh, save it, read it later thing? The one I've got installed somewhere but never use, yeah. That's the problem with Pocket, isn't it? I've done the same. I put stuff in it thinking I really must read that and I very seldom get round to reading it. Anyway, it's a good service. Well, the problem was... It was a badly formatted blog post, which was strange because I'd written it in perfect HTML. Now, I know it must be because I exported it from Ulysses. I should actually have been able to publish it directly from Ulysses. I'm using the beta version and it's got an export to WordPress feature. But that's a whole other story. So uh, what was actually missing? There was a bulleted list missing, which was strange because the bulleted list above it wasn't missing. I'd put three videos in this piece and the videos were all over the place. So we were chatting about it on Twitter when Pocket popped up and asked for a link and said they'd check it out. Well, you know, sometimes they do that, don't they, yeah. these companies, and you never hear from them again. Anyway, about a day and a half later, they came back to report that they could replicate the issue. So there was something wrong with their system. They've logged a ticket for it with their development team and they're working on it, which is how it all should be, isn't it? It is, yes. And so very seldom is, unless that's just me. Anyway, it was all downhill from there. Normal service now resumed. I got a question from a friend this week about the startup disk almost full message. And I was recommending Disk Doctor as the safest way to solve said problem. So I was giving instructions for how to deal with it. And I needed to be precise as to what you would actually see in Disk Doctor. So I ran the app and I started the system scan and I was making notes about what would be safe to delete, which by the time I'd finished wasn't much. But I then spotted on my own system, which I do keep 
very clean. An alarming amount of disk space used in the application caches section. Now, it was more than I expected, but the application caches include Spotify. And sometimes that can be up to 10 gig if I let it if I let it loose with my drive. It just seemed more than I, I expected. So you can drill down using a details button. And I did. And of this space, I think there was about 20 gig. And I was only expecting somewhere between probably 10 to 12. And what I found that was that there was only about eight or nine in Spotify. So I thought, well, there's over 10 missing somewhere. I found over 10 gig of cache files in the net.telestream.screenflow6 folder. Now that folder's within library caches, so it's definitely caching. And Screenflow wasn't running at the time. I hadn't run it for over a day. Just seemed excessive to me. Now there was nothing in the root of that folder, but within it, there was a folder called wave caches. In there, there was over a hundred cache files. And some of them were quite small, but they added up to over 10 gig, which I thought was ridiculous. Now, deleting them didn't cause me any problems, but I wanted to know more. So I got you involved. You did, but I didn't have that folder. I'm thinking it was probably because your version is from the App Store and mine was direct from Telestream. I reckon the folder's there somewhere, but it's likely they wouldn't be in the same place. Yeah, but I couldn't find any similar folder either. At which point we both came to the same conclusion. Yes, that you'd broken it. Pretty much, yes. You see, I will admit to it crashing a couple of times with a large file. But I think it should really tidy up after itself better than that, though, even if it had crashed. Because it didn't come back. Sometimes when it crashes, there is some kind of recovery system in place. And it will, when you try restarting it, the first thing it does is ask you to log a ticket. And the second thing is it will open up the file. But it wasn't doing that. So if, if there is no automatic recovery going on, then it should, in my opinion, tidy itself up. I've got a one terabyte internal drive. But even that would fill very quickly if you had 10 gig a week trapped in its cache folders. And if that had been on my MacBook Air, I'd have noticed instantly that I had 10 gig missing because it's only got a 256 gig hard drive. So I deleted them and um, there was no no negative impact on anything, shall we say. So um, you might want to have a look for that just to see um, what it's doing on your system. And like you said, you didn't have one, but Probably you've not processed too much video, I would guess. Not lately. Now, you see, I pushed through for that um, review on the site almost four terabytes of data. I got four terabytes of, of recordings, which is a lot, I know, but it was in full quality. And I pushed all of that through it. And like I said, it did crash a couple of times. So I'm guessing that that's where it came from. But yeah, yeah, like I'm saying, in my opinion, they should sort that out, not leave it there for me to do. If I hadn't have found it, I dread to think how much would have been in there by the time I started to think mm, something wrong here. Uh, so another problem for me to sort out. But now time for an app review. It's a good one and it's a free app. We like free. This one is a very good one. You may recall in by 77 back in September 2013, I reviewed an app called Wimaway. I do. That's the one. Shall I sing a chorus? Please don't. Please don't. Please don't. It was an app that replaced caffeine on my Mac. Now, both caffeine and Wimaway did the same job. The idea is that they keep your Mac awake. So it doesn't dim the screen. The um, screen saver doesn't come on. Nothing goes to sleep. It stays awake. Now, the different options were the main differentiator between the two apps. And without going into all of those again, I've switched to something else. That's the short version. Now, this time it's an app called Amphetamine. It's free on the Mac App Store, as is Caffeine and Wimaway. And I switched for two main reasons. First of all, you've got a broader range of options. And secondly, there is a better way to control those options. So the options themselves, they're just much more granular um, in terms of the control of wake time. So how long you want your machine to stay awake. Caffeine, for example, had a range of predefined times. 
but there was only eight of them. So you could say keep your Mac awake indefinitely. And then there was five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, two hours or five hours. So, for instance, there was no way to set it for two and a half hours. In that circumstance, you'd have to choose five. But what if you wanted to set it for five and a half hours? Well, you couldn't. So you'd have to go for indefinitely. You know, I I never used any of them. You just turned it on. I just I just turned it on and then forgot about it and came in the next morning and realised my Mac had been on all night. Yes, I noticed. You see, if your Mac's awake at the point I'm going to bed, then I'll check whether you've left caffeine on and I'll turn it off. But that that's one of the things that I'm thinking about. You know, leaving it on overnight or I should really learn how to use this software, shouldn't I? <laughs> you really should, yes. <laughs> Uh, this one, this one's great because it does give you complete control. So if you want it on for five minutes, you can set it for five minutes. But you could also, for example, and I did do this just to t check it. Well, wouldn't say you could if you couldn't. 21 hours, 34 minutes, 17 seconds. And it did. It actually put that up. And um, so anything you want, really. Now, it's got a whole range of preferences as well. So if you just want to turn it on, there's an icon in the toolbar. You can click it. But what happens when you click that icon? Well, what happens is the default behavior and you can specify the default behavior, which is the duration. So the default duration you specify. And then when you click it, that's how long it will activate it. Now, you can also change the behavior of the left click and the right click on the icons. For me, I felt that it was backwards. I thought it was wrong. They had it where you you left click and it brought up the preferences and you right click to turn it on. And probably because caffeine and Wimaway work the other way. So I, I changed that behavior. So for me, the left click turns it on and off and the right click brings up the preferences. Obviously, you probably want to launch at login. But it's also got triggers as well. So you could turn it on or off based on Wi-Fi or the power and battery, whether you're on the mains power or battery and what apps you've got open. So, for instance, if you're watching a video, you could make it stay awake if you've got VLC running. Um, the other thing that I hadn't noticed on any of the other options that I'd looked at, and there are a huge range of these apps that all profess to do exactly the same thing. And they do at a very superficial level, but it's when you drill down into the apps, you know, how configurable are they for you? But this one has the ability to keep drives awake. Now, you know what I'm like when a drive nods off. I know. It's n it's not pretty, is it? No. No, but there's something with the Mac. I don't think it's the drives I'm using. It really seems to slow a Mac down the minute you put an external drive on it. So if I can keep a drive awake, all, all, all the better for me. So that option's in there. Um, now, you can also create user configurable system-wide shortcuts to start and end the sessions, which means that you wouldn't even have to go up and click it. Now, if you're like me, I like to keep my menu bar clear. So I don't particularly want to see that icon up there, nor, you know, I don't even need to see it. So I certainly don't want it there to interact with it. I would just like to be able to start and stop the thing with a shortcut. And it does let you do that. So I've set up um, ooh, the three. I call it three and A. So it's um, control, option and command to turn it on and just add the shift to that. So four and A to turn it off, which just makes it that little bit easier. Now, what I'd had to do with caffeine was all kinds of script stuff to make an app that was it wasn't really an app. It was just a script that made this app do something. But then uh, and then I had to synchronize it with Dropbox across system. It was horrible. So this is much easier. You can just specify it within the preferences. Um, you can also have notifications during use or at the start and end when it's turned on and it's turned off. I think they realize that people get used to icons. And because of that, they've put in an extensive style option section of preferences. So you can actually change the icons that represent on and off. By default, it looks like a pill, hence amphetamine. Um, if it's inactive, the bar goes across it. And if it's active, then the bar goes, runs top to bottom. But you can change those icons. Some of the alternatives that are in there, there is a, a coffee cup, which is empty or full. Uh, I think there's a, a ticking across. You can actually provide your own. So if you wanted something completely random, you could do that. You just have to provide two icons for it and you're done. 
You can also choose to show the remaining time, which again, for me, if I don't want to see the icon, then I probably don't want to see the remaining time. But I did turn it on. And the reason that I did was I'd moved the icon into Bartender. And I have Bartender set up so there is a shortcut key which will open up Bartender. And the same shortcut key closes Bartender, which means that I can actually check if it's on or off and how long it's got to go without clicking around. So I did leave that turned on, but it's in Bartender, so I don't particularly see it. It's also got light and dark themes and supports Retina. I didn't realise until I went back to check, but Caffeine, I knew it didn't support Retina displays and I knew it didn't support dark mode. But I didn't realise it hadn't been updated since the 29th of December 2010. Which explains why it's got no support for retina displays or dark mode. So I'm thinking it's amazing it's still working with um, El Capitan, much less Sierra. Um, so it is working with El Capitan, but you've got the problems of um, the display not looking the best it could. Now, all of those settings within Amphetamine can be made into default settings. So all the configurations are activated automatically when you activate the thing. You don't have to go in and constantly reset them if you don't want to. Now, all of that is good enough. But the killer feature for me was the discovery of an Alfred workflow. Now, that Alfred workflow means that I can activate Amphetamine using the default settings that I've configured within it. I can activate with custom settings directly from the Alfred command. So what I could type in is the keyword for amphetamine, then the word on, and then I can type 90M for 90 minutes or 1H30M, again, 90 minutes, but it will show as one hour 30. And I can also deactivate it with Alfred. Now, what all of that actually means is I can use all of the features of amphetamine without ever actually seeing it, using the interface, once it's configured and the Alfred workflow is installed, I just use Alfred to do absolutely everything that I need. One change I did make to the workflow was to change the keyword that you type to access it. So Alfred is a launcher at heart, but it can do a lot more than that. So if I wanted to run text edit, you just start typing the word text edit. And once you get specific enough, text edit will appear as the top item. So what was happening here was the keyword was amphetamine. Well, I don't know about you, but by the time I've stopped myself to check how it's spelt, and I know how it's spelt, but that's not the point. There's a PH in it, so it all gets confusing. I thought by the time I've done that, it's actually quicker to move the mouse. So I changed the workflow. Uh, first of all, I think I, yeah, I changed it to AMPH. And then I decided I didn't actually need the H because I didn't have any other apps that started with AMP. So I actually decided to change it to AMP. So if I type AMP on, it activates it with its default settings. If I type AMP off, it turns it off. I can type AMP on 90M, AMP on 1H30M, and that's exactly what it does. So I don't need to even think about it anymore. It's awesome, absolutely awesome. To be honest, half of the awesomeness is Alfred and the other half is amphetamine. But that's when apps work great together. And those two do particularly work great together. I was having a look on um, the site and there was a help site as well. And I was reading about the workflow and I ended up at Mac Update and I noticed in the comments, most of which were, yeah, I think virtually all of them were incredibly positive. I noticed that the developer was replying to people, which is always a good sign, I think, don't you? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, well, there was this particular comment and it was right down the bottom. So I'd gone through, oh, 50, 60 comments to get to this one. And it was from the developer who is William C. Gustafson. It was back in August 2015. And he'd put this comment, short little comment, but useful. Just so everyone knows, I will always keep this app free and also free of in-app purchases. Thanks for the review. Which is good to know, isn't it? But more than, more importantly than that, to be honest, is the fact that it's still in development and it's been updated and it's got a great feature set. So can highly recommend that. I will put all of the links that you need for that in the show notes. I might have to try that one. 
You will need, if you're going to try it and you want to use Alfred to control it, you will need the power pack for Alfred because it is a workflow. So um, I'll, I'll send you a link as well, if you like, Mike. If you're going to oh, thank it. you. It is much better. It is much, much better. Just the fact that you've got that control and you can control it without fiddling. Because I don't know about you, but once I've gone away to do something and I, I've had to set up 17 different things, I come back and think, where, where was I? What was I doing? So I do like that one. Now, new toy alert. <gasps> we need a sound effect for that, you know. I've got just the thing. Or the Elaine in an Apple Store extended remix. It's still missing something. I've got it. Hey, big Perfect. That'll do. Certainly accurate. Although in my defence, this was a bargain. Another one? No, no, it really was. Um, when the iPad Pro 12.9 inch arrived late last year, I wasn't paying Apple prices for a cover. Remember, I got a cheap and cheerful copy of the one that I'd used on the iPad Air 2, and it, it was just a few pounds. When the iPad Pro 9.7 was announced, I took a while to decide whether to buy it or not. Yeah, right. No, no, I really did. Surely you recall that completely spontaneous little detour after the visit to the dentist. Oh, yes, I do. It wasn't planned, honest. For me, the ability to use the pencil on both iPads was the huge benefit. And since iOS 10 is going to render iPad Cyril non-updatable, my iPad Air 2 is going to have to be my demo iPad. So I definitely made the right decision. You're not seriously trying to tell us that you're short of iPads. I'd never get away with that. Anyway, as I discussed last week, there was. Last week, is that great? Um, yes. Uh, launch day, virtually no cases available. There were the Apple cases and I had seen them and um, no, discounted them. The problem was trying to get one that fitted uh, in terms of the speaker and camera flash placement. But I found one and um, it said it was made specifically for the baby iPad Pro. So I risked it. That was £6.95. That's the one I talked about last week. And um, it looked identical to the iPad Air 2 case. And it arrived, as I say, perfect fit, wonderful, wonderful. Because I only had simple requirements, I just wanted it to have a full back, magnetic cover, and look reasonable. So it ticked all the boxes, I was happy with it. Now, the thing was, there was no keyboard. But until now, I haven't really needed a keyboard with my iPad or my phone. I have worked mobile with all my devices, but only on occasions. When I do, I tend to use the Logitech EasySwitch K811 keyboard, which is very nice. That's the one that will attach to three different devices and you flick between them with three buttons at the top. But things are about to change, though, as Scrivener for iOS is due later in the summer. And you're writing a bestseller. Much more important. MacBite show planning. I heard there was a beta program for that. My lips are sealed. We all know what that means. It means... Ooh. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. So, imagine my delight as I stumble across a case that looks exactly the same as mine, but with a keyboard. Now, as I mentioned last week, I thought it would prove to be too tempting, and it did, arrived on Monday. It's got the same great fit as the keyboard free version. It's obviously a bit thicker. It needs to accommodate that keyboard. But I, mean, I handed it to you, didn't I? It's thinner than a conference file and much more useful. It is. Now, I didn't buy the Apple keyboard for a few reasons. I, I absolutely was not keen on the origami approach to wrapping it around the iPad. And this one is so much neater. They've managed to get away from the original origami problem by allowing the actual keyboard itself to be detached from the case. Now, usually that means some hideous, cheap-looking Velcro or unsightly straps on the case to hold the keyboard when you're travelling. But there's none of that here. The case uses magnets to hold the keyboard in place when it's closed. Uh, the cover wraps round to the back of the iPad and another magnet on the back holds that case closed. Now, when you open it, the keyboard will move forward towards you to allow the iPad to stand up and tilt backwards. Um, it doesn't slot in anywhere, so it's configurable for you to decide how far you want it tilted back. So you move the keyboard as far as you want and then just it would rest against it, but it rests against the back edge of it. 
I think that's great because it, you can then be flexible as to the working angle that you want. And the keyboard will com completely detach as well. So if you don't actually want it, you know, in front of the iPad, if you want to move the iPad back or to the side, then, then you can and you can carry on using this keyboard. It connects via Bluetooth and it is very simple to connect. I've tried connecting some things via Bluetooth and, you know, some are a bit awkward. This was a doddle. It just appeared straight away. Just tap it and you're done. There's a there's a cable included. It's um, what I'd call a standard Kindle style charging cable. It's not over long, but it's not that short either. So probably about right for charging it. Now, I know the Apple one uses the smart connector, of course, but this one is independently charged. I actually didn't mind that because I sent you out, didn't I? With um, I think you took your phone, your iPad. You might have had a keyboard or not with that charging block thing. Yeah. The power block. The power block. Um, it's a power block that's quite powerful. I think it's somewhere between 20, 22,000 whatevers and 28,000 whatevers. I don't know what the whatevers are. Anyway, uh, it's pretty big. But there are three USB slots on it. So you could charge an iPad, your keyboard and your phone at the same time. And honestly, this thing, it it is so powerful. I don't think I've ever actually managed to flatten it. I've charged my iPad Pro with it twice, or, you know, without recharging. I've charged iPads with it. It is very, very good. I'll have to find out what make that was and put that in as well. I got it cheap at Amazon. But for me, I, I like the fact that I've got that flexibility with it, that I can charge it just off any USB when I'm traveling. Now, the keys themselves are very impressive, much better than I thought. There's great travel on them and that makes for accurate typing. It's actually a better typing experience than the normal Apple Bluetooth keyboard, not the one for the iPad, the actual one that you get for your desktop computers. And as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, you know, it would be very simple to pair this with any device in an emergency. So if your keyboard had died, you could literally just pull this thing out of the case and use it with your Mac if you wanted. Uh, all the cutouts for the case itself are perfectly placed, but I, I expected that, to be honest, um, after I talked about the keyboard free version. It's a, it's a kind of leather look PVC, and it's certainly no worse than the Apple original one. In fact, I actually much prefer the look of it compared to the Apple smart keyboard. The only thing that I noticed after a while was that really missing, and again, this isn't on the Apple one either, is a way to attach the pencil. Um, because I would use the pencil with both the big iPad and the, the new iPad Pro. There was an elastic strap style holder thing that would wrap around the front cover of a case. And to be honest, it should work well, but it's about £15 from Amazon. And I just thought that was quite expensive by comparison to the whole case with the keyboard at £20. So tell them what you did next. Bought another one for the big iPad Pro. <laughs> But look, Scrivener's coming to iOS. And when I'm not in Keynote or ScreenFlow, I tend to be in Scrivener. Those three apps get more use than virtually anything else. And a keyboard is handy for the speed. Now, I did say, though, didn't I? I like the on-screen keyboard that the iPad Pro had, the large iPad Pro, because it's got that extra row of keys and it's more like a standard desktop one. But the case is awesome. It's very similar to the 9.7 version in style. The main difference is actually the keyboard because it is a full size keyboard. It's got an extra row of dedicated keys above the number keys. So they work the brightness. They can lock the device. There's also dedicated cut, copy, paste buttons and there's media keys. So you can play videos, you can alter the volume levels um, and they are dedicated to do that. So you literally just have to tap them. The 9.7 version has function key access to those features from the number row. So there is a function key in the lower left and it's similar to most keyboards. You'll see the function keys in purple paint and the symbols across the top. They're in purple, too, to show you that's what will happen if you hold down the function key. Both keyboards on the small version, and larger version are American in layout, but then so is the Apple model. Now, the practical differences, what that means for a UK based user, actually, there's only a few of them and they're pretty insignificant. There is a hash or pound sign shown on the three key. But obviously, when you use it, it still types a UK pound sign. The slash and the pipe key is above the enter key on the right. 
And because of that, the enter key is smaller. It's not an inverted L shape. So you do need to be slightly more accu accurate when you go to try and press it. There is a backwards delete key. I really, really like that. That That is handy. The only thing that was stopping me getting the most benefit from it was I was so not used to having it on an iPad, I kept forgetting it was there. Do you have that problem on an iPad that you've got to move the other side of probably where you are to use the backspace key? Um, I've never thought about it, but yeah, thinking about it, yes. Yeah, it's not too bad now you've got that thing where you can swipe across the keyboard. But other than that, you've got to you know, manually move where you need to be. So that that's really useful. You know, the next problem will be, won't you? I'll get used to it on the keyboard. And then when I try and use the one on the glass, I'll get annoyed. Maybe Apple will fix it. Um, the only thing that I could find on either of these cases that wasn't perfect was the auto unlock wake thing. It does work, but only sometimes. So it's a little bit erratic. I can live with that, to be honest. Um, I don't see that as such a huge deal. I tend to turn my iPad off myself anyway. I can actually see me leaving the bigger iPad Pro in the keyboard case, but I can see me probably swapping the 9.7 between the simple case and the keyboard case, only because when I'm in, um, I'm more likely than not be using the iPad to watch something. And the stands that I've got, mm, I'd probably have to take the keyboard off to use them. So the 9.7, I'll probably switch. But the other one, I'm going to leave in that all the time. Now, the one other thing that I did buy, yes, something else I bought, was two very thin microfiber cloths. And I cut them down to the size of the iPad screen to keep the keyboard from actually touching the glass. Now, I did use them for a week without anything covering the glass and there were no marks whatsoever. I think it's just I'm happier with the keyboard not actually touching the glass. I think it's all in my mind. So um, OCD. Yes, yes, probably. But that's not the point, is it? Well, it's too late when something's happened. And with, with the case being open at the ends, you never know if something drops down there and gets stuck because there are gaps between the keys. If you think about how a smart cover works. Like, like a peanut or something. Oh, yes. <laughs> We've been enjoying peanuts lately, haven't we? Yes, like a peanut or some, something similar. But if you think about how a smart cover works, it actually attaches with magnets to the glass. If you think about a keyboard touching the glass, there are gaps between it. So I wasn't trusting it. Let's put it like that. Now, the cloths that I got were the same as some others that I bought before for the same job with laptops, but they sent a different colour. Pink. More of a dusky peach, actually. The originals that I got were blue, but this time peach arrived. I'll put a link in the show notes. Some reviewers said the cloths were far too thin and that they were more like J cloths, which is a bit harsh because they are better than that. They're easily three, four times the thickness of a J cloth. And you need them thin to put them in the case. Now, they are thin, though. They're not standard micro microfiber cloths. But if you think about it, a standard microfiber cloth wouldn't work. It's just too fabric-like, so it would be difficult to get it in. These things, because they're thinner, they're a little starchy. They do become less starchy as you start using them, but not to the point that they're screwed up. You know, they do retain this kind of... It's easy to get it in, let's put it like that. But back to the keyboard cases themselves. Definitely a 4.5 out of 5. It would have been a 5 with a UK keyboard layout and perfect auto on magnets. But at around 21 to 22 pounds each, which is between 110 and 120 pounds cheaper than the Apple version, they are a complete bargain. So much so, let's just justify this a little bit. Who said this week, oh, do they do one of those for the iPad Air too? I don't know who did. Oh, that was it me. It was you. It was me. It was you. And do they? Uh, and, and the answer to that is no, uh, I couldn't find one. But I did have a look at it all. And then I had a look at an iPad Air 2. And I said it would probably fit. So this week's task for you is to take the one off my iPad Pro and try it on your iPad Air 2 and then let everybody know next week. OK, next week. <clears throat> Move along. Should we talk about a personal cloud? Oh, yes. It's our, I have forgotten what number we are in this series. Three. Now. Is it three? Well, doesn't matter what number it is. It's, it is OneDrive. We're talking about OneDrive. Um, this isn't an all-you-can-eat review, and I'm not going to spoil the punchline either. Oh, well done. 
it's going to focus on five areas. What is OneDrive, how to access it, integration with Office, sharing documents and collaboration. So to start with what, what it is, it's a cloud storage solution, hence it's coming under our personal cloud series, and it's from Microsoft. To use it, you need a Microsoft account, which is free. And what you get is you get five gig of space, totally free, or you can upgrade to 50 gig for £24 or $24. There's something wrong there a year. They're using the Adobe Exchange rate. They are, aren't they? Yes. The other thing you can do is you can sign up for an Office 365 account and get one terabyte. Now, an Office 365 account will cost you $70 or £60 a year. Uh, you can get it a little bit cheaper if you shop around, I think. Did we get it from Amazon? We did, but we didn't go for that one. There is a huge, huge difference between the single user and the five users. One's personal and one's home. Yeah. The uh, the home edition is $100 or £80, and that gives you five users. So what that means is, for example, you can install Office on five devices, but from the point of view of OneDrive, you get one terabyte, not to share across those five users, but one terabyte for each user. Well, you've said £80 there for five users, but I'm pretty sure that we got ours for about Six, somewhere between 62 to 65 pounds, something like that. And the pricing is crazy for the extra storage. Based on the cost you've quoted for 50 gig, which was 24 pounds, the price for an extra one terabyte for one year would be 480 pounds. And that just shows the huge value of the five shares that you get, the five opportunities to share. There's five terabytes of storage included with your £65 subscription, and that would actually cost you £2,400 a year. If you're wondering how to get your um, your five terabytes, by the way, get, get four fake email addresses, sign up uh, by connecting those fake email addresses to your main account, and that's then going to give you your, your five terabytes. Now, how do you actually access OneDrive? Well, there's various ways of doing it. One method is to use a web browser. Simple as that. Uh, log in via OneDrive.com and then you can upload files just by dragging and dropping from your desktop or your finder straight into your browser. One thing to be aware of is that Safari doesn't support the upload of folders, whereas Chrome does. You can't upload a file that's larger than 10 gigabytes. Now, I've actually hit this limit with 13 gigabyte zip files, which have been um, video source files, source files for some of the, the video uh, tutorials I've done. And also, you can't upload a file that have, that's got certain characters uh, in the name, such as question marks and slashes, because although those characters may be legal, in OS 10, they are not seen as legal characters in OneDrive. Now, I know you separated your files and created multiple zip files manually, you know, that were all smaller than 10 gig. But there is a more automated option where you create a single zip file, but you tell your zip application to segment the archive based on size. Um, used to be common in the days of floppy disks. As to whether our lovely MacBiters know that or not will probably depend on an age demographic of the audience. Never mind the zip files. There are some folks asking what a floppy disk is. Don't get the crew depressed. Not at their age. This actually just shows a limitation of the built-in zip utility. Or actually rather a limitation of the interface that they've bothered to build for the archive utility. Because it can be done via the terminal. I'll put a link in that explains how you can do that. But I actually use Better Zip from MacItBetter.com. And there is an option when you come to create your zip file to split into volumes of X size. So you can say, like in your case, they'd all have to be less than 10 gig. I covered a lot of zip-related issues and applications in a MacBytes learning session back in March. You did, and you covered the whole of OneDrive too. Both of these recordings are available on mapbyteslearning.co.uk. 
You know what? I'm feeling generous today. How generous? Extremely generous. Let's give the MacBiters a code to download both of those videos completely free of charge. Now that is generous. Let's use MacBytes 104. And can you make it valid till the 1st of July? I can. So simply go to macbyteslearning.co.uk, add those recordings to your basket. I'll put the links in the show notes. And then use the code MacBytes104 and it should reduce the price to zero. Now, if you're listening after that date and you've missed it, drop us a line and we'll see what we can do. We will. Now, there is another way that you can use OneDrive, and there is something called the Sync Client. That's S-Y-N-C, not S-I-N-C. It's a free app that you install on your Mac, and as part of the installation, you log in to your OneDrive account, which is how it connects up to the to the OneDrive account, and you also specify a folder on your hard drive, or you can use an external drive. Any files that you save to or copy or move to this folder are automatically uploaded to your cloud-based storage on Microsoft servers. And this folder, this, this one on your hard drive, is known as the sync folder. It's not just a conduit between your Mac and OneDrive. So any files that you put in there remain on your local drive. And that way you have access to them without having to use the browser. And it also means that you can access them when, for example, you've got no internet connection. If you update a file in your sync folder, it once you've got an internet connection, if you don't have one when you're doing it, it automatically updates the version in the cloud and vice versa. If you delete or rename a file from the sync folder, it gets deleted from or renamed in the cloud. Now, be aware that those limitations that we talked about, the 10 gig and the illegal characters still apply. So uh, I tried this yesterday. I actually, for testing, uploaded or literally just moved um, a 12 gig zip file into my sync folder and then it attempted to upload it to OneDrive in the cloud and it came up with a message that told me that it couldn't do it because of the limitation of the, of the 10 gig. So there is no way, no way around that apart from, as you say, if it is a zip file, split it up in the way that you explained. Now, if you have um, files and folders in OneDrive at the time you install the sync client, you get the option to copy these to your sync folder. So it could be that you've already been using uh, OneDrive and so you've, you've been using it in the browser, so you've already got stuff in there already. Or it could be that you are now putting the sync client on a new Mac and you want to take the files that are in your OneDrive and copy them down to your sync folder on the Mac. But you can actually choose which folders are synced. It's what they call selective syncing. And that's useful if you're short of, uh, of space on your local drive. Uh, but it's also useful if you just don't want to have copies of certain files. I've got, um, I've got um, archives of, um, of videos that are in OneDrive, and I don't particularly want them taking up space on my uh, my local hard drive. So I've chosen not to sync those particular files. Now, you don't sync at all, do you? No, can't be doing with it. I did install the sync client, but what I ended up actually doing with it was selectively syncing one folder called sync folder. And I do use it as a conduit just to get stuff uploaded. And then I put it where it lives through a browser or something. Can't be doing with it at all. Plus the fact that on your SSD, you haven't got that much space anyway, have you? No, but I just find that if I try selectively syncing, I've got to remember where stuff was. So it was like when we were talking about the proxy icons. You know, OneDrive used to have that on Windows, and that's just the best feature. If it could, if it had that, amazing. But, you know, if I have to remember that I do have a folder called X up there and I haven't actually synced it. I, I'm not going to remember that. I've got far too much to think about to worry about manually managing files. Fair enough. Now, you can also use OneDrive on iOS. There's a, a free iOS app uh, and this allows you to open your files on your iPad and your iPhone. Many files can be opened and the contents viewed inside the OneDrive app itself. So things like videos, audios, photos, and PDFs. If you try and open an Office file, then it will open in the appropriate app if you've got it installed, so Word, Excel, PowerPoint. If not, you're prompted to get the app. And you, you can actually choose to open a file 
in another app. So, um, you know, PDF in PDF Expert or I annotate something like that. And the app, the OneDrive app, includes file management. So you can delete, you can rename um, files, you can move them to another folder. One of the great features of, of OneDrive is the sharing. So um, if you want to share a file with somebody, then you can do that. You can do that from the, um, the, the browser, but you can also do it from the iOS app. You can email a file to somebody. You can send a file or send a link to somebody via a text message. You can copy a file from OneDrive to Dropbox, which can be useful if you decide you want to move stuff from one uh, service to another. And there's also something called an offline mode, which isn't what I thought it was. What it actually does is it lets you select a file, click on an icon, which is actually a parachute icon, for some reason. And when your device is offline, you tap the offline button in the app, and then you tap the file and it lets you view the file. I thought it would actually let you edit the file as well, but no, it just lets you view the file, which I guess is better than, uh, than just coming up with a message that says, sorry, no internet connection. You can't view it at all. There is great integration with Office, obviously, because, you know, Microsoft have, have, have made OneDrive and Office. So in a browser, you can choose to open an Office file from OneDrive in the appropriate app. So if I clicked on a, a an Excel file, it would open it up in Excel. So I can do that from a browser or I can open it in an online version of the appropriate app. Uh, we've got uh, Office Online. Office Online is part of either Office 365, but you also get it if you get the free Microsoft account. I think at one point it was just part of Office 365, but now Microsoft have made it available with a, a free Microsoft account. Office Online is a cut down version of Word, Excel and PowerPoint. And you can also create new Office documents via Office Online and they will be saved straight to OneDrive. Do you know, I look at that a completely different way. How do you look at it? Um, in, a, in a browser, OneDrive is actually required for template use now. And um, there used to be a huge Office template library online and there were templates available for all the apps, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, but also Access and Publisher. And you could browse them. There was previews and you could then download the ones you wanted in an archive format. It was some kind of weird proprietary thing, but you know, it would open with an, an, an archive utility. Um, when you unarchived it, you got a genuine template in the format of the appropriate app. Now, all of that changed between Office 2013 and 2016. So you can go up online, but there are now fewer templates and they are for fewer applications. So now I think you'll find they are, they are only for Word, Excel and PowerPoint and you access them in a completely different way. Uh, there are two ways to get to them. The first way is via the app that's installed on your system. So there is an integrated search of the online template repository from Microsoft available from inside Word, Excel and PowerPoint. But the other way to do it, which is more of a traditional way to do it, is via a website and it's templates.office.com. Now, it's the second method where OneDrive becomes essential because when you find the template, and again, you've got the previews, but it opens as a file. It doesn't open the original template. It opens as a file inside the relevant Office Online app. So you're in a browser and you can edit it. But if you want to save it, you're going to need to log in to a Microsoft account. And then the option you've got is to save it to OneDrive. And if you don't have OneDrive, then you're not saving the file. Mm. Microsoft recently built or had built an extension for Chrome. So if you're using OneDrive in Chrome rather than Safari or Firefox or any other browser, there is a free extension. I'll stick a, a link in the show notes. What it does is it adds an icon to the toolbar in Chrome. The first time that you click the icon, and it, it, it actually looks like the, the Office logo, the little orange square thing. But the first time that you click the icon, you're prompted to sign into OneDrive. You click the icon, you click open, you click from OneDrive, and OneDrive is 
opened in a new tab as if you'd actually navigated there manually. So it's just saving you a little bit of time. It just means that you can access OneDrive from um, anywhere in Chrome. And if you click the icon and you click open and click browse, what you can do is you can select a file from your local file system. And that file is then uploaded to OneDrive and it's put, this is the only bit I don't like, it's put into a folder called Office Online Extension because then you've either got to leave it in there or you've got to then go and manage your files and move it somewhere else. And what you can also do with this extension is you can create new Word, Excel and PowerPoint files. Again, just by clicking the icon, it opens the appropriate online app and then saves the files to the documents folder in OneDrive. If you're on your desktop, if you're on your Mac and you've got Office 2016, sign into your Microsoft account. And then when you go to file save or file open, you can actually save to and open from OneDrive, not the sync folder, but actually the remote cloud-based server. That's how I've still got access to OneDrive without actually having the sync client installed. Right. On to, uh, to talking about sharing documents, which I briefly mentioned earlier, you can share documents in a number of ways. And one of the things that you can do is you can actually embed a document into a web page. So if you have a video, a photo, a PDF, or an office document that's stored in OneDrive and you want to share it with others, one option, as I say, is to embed it into a web page or a blog post. In OneDrive, you select the file, click embed, and it gives you an embed code. And you just copy and paste this into your blog post or your web page in the design uh, side of things. And then any visitors to your page or your blog will see that document, that photo, the video embedded in the page, and they're given read-only access to it. So, you know, if you embedded a PowerPoint file, for example, people could actually navigate through the whole presentation. They don't just see the first slide. They can navigate through the whole presentation. They're given read-only access, uh, but the good thing is that any changes that are made to the document in OneDrive are reflected immediately in the web page. Now, traditional sharing, sometimes you need to give someone else or a group of people access to a document or a folder. And the old way of doing that was to email it out to them. Using OneDrive share feature, the document or the folder is stored in your OneDrive account. And then you choose to give people read only or edit access. To do that, all you do is you click share and click email and type in their email address. And then they will get an email with a link to the document, which is something that we do quite a lot, isn't it? It is. Yeah. They can actually then choose to add the link to their OneDrive, which I think is really useful. And that way they will see the file in their OneDrive as if it was something they'd created. And that way they don't have to keep the email with the link in it. And if you want to remove someone's access to the file or folder, there's an option to do this via the info panel. Info panel! I knew we'd get that in somewhere. There's an info panel on the right-hand side of your browser screen. Another way to share is to just generate a link. And then once you've got the link, you can then paste it anywhere into an email, an instant message, a blog post. You can put it into a you know, social media, into a tweet or something like that. In fact, if you want to post the link on social media, there is actually built-in support for Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. There would be LinkedIn. LinkedIn, yes. I was just thinking about that. Just remember that if you set the link to can edit, anybody who has the link can edit the document. Literally anybody in the world, they don't need a OneDrive account. And if you want to attach your document via email, if you've got an Outlook.com account, which you get with a free Microsoft account anyway, you can create an email and then you can just say insert share from OneDrive and it sends a link. Now, one of the best features, I think I've said that about three times, but you no, know, one of the best features is co-authoring. So it allows multiple people to edit a document at the same time. And you can see who is currently editing the document and you can actually see where in the document they are via a little colored marker with their name on it. Couple of tips for you. With PowerPoint and Word, it works best if all the co-authors are actually editing in a browser. 
So yes, you know, I could be editing a Word document in a browser and you could be editing the same document at the same time using Word 2016 and it will work. But for best experience, it's better if we were both working in a browser. And for Excel, all co-authors must be using a browser. If any one of them is using the desktop app, then the file will get locked and it, it won't allow co-authoring. And if you have a OneNote notebook stored in OneDrive, you can share this with other people. They can edit at the same time um, as you using OneNote Online, OneNote Desktop App or OneNote Mobile App. And another great feature, how many times have I said that? Oh, I've lost count. So have I, yes. You're a bit of a fanboy. I am a bit of a fanboy, yeah. Skype integration. I can see why they bought Skype now. Well, how long's that taken? Mm. Two, three years? Yes, exactly. Yeah, Skype integration is a new feature that was launched back in March. The ability to access Skype from within OneDrive. So if you open an Office document in your browser and you click the Skype icon at the top of the screen, you can actually make an audio call, a video call, or an instant message to any number or any contact, which is really handy if you're editing a document with other people, makes it really easy to communicate with your co-collaborators, and the chat history remains connected to the document, so it's there when the document is next opened. So, short version, they should get it. Yes, definitely. Oh, good. Are you ready? Yes. iPhone, iPhone, iPhone. Oh, yes. A big event for you this week. Yes, I updated my iPhone. Now, the MacBiters could be forgiven for thinking that that's not such a big deal. But with you, it is. How many apps did need updating? Um, 80 plus. Like I said. Yeah, they needed doing before I risked the 9.3.2 update. So... Three hours later... Didn't take that long to get into trouble. No, it never does. Find my friends and podcasts out were moaning about not being available from the App Store within iTunes and only on iOS. Yeah, I got that, but I didn't moan like you did. I assumed changes were made after WWDC Keynote to support the ability to delete apps. I'm not sure, but that's what I assumed. Yes, but it's a major pain when I need to switch accounts during the update because I've got multiple uh, Apple accounts and, as everybody knows, you can't combine them together. So I've got some apps bought on one account and some bought apps bought on another account and I need to keep logging in and out of the different accounts during the update so what I need to do is log in as account one update all the individual apps log out log in as account two update those apps and because the podcast app and the find my friends were actually bought well they weren't bought but they were they're attached to the account that I wasn't logged in to I had to keep switching in and out Got there in the end, though. So, we're all ready for the 9.3.3 update, then? Of course. Now, before we go, I thought we should share one of the more light-hearted moments of the MacBytes Live on Monday. So, picture the scene. We're frantically typing away to each other, while doubtless one of the Apple presentation cast of thousands was rambling on about the imminent invasion of the giant emojis. And someone who shall remain nameless... You mean Carrie? As I was saying, someone did the old entering the message in the wrong window whilst multitasking thing during the keynote. Something you've done yourself. Indeed, and it was with Carrie that I did it. I was intending to send you a text outlining the contents of my car boot. Information that Carrie received. Mm, much to her surprise. Absolutely. Now, the contents of my car boot are, of course, absolutely fascinating. And luckily, nothing embarrassing on Monday for Carrie. But it does prove the point, doesn't it? All these whiz-bang effects, they're fabulous. But the features that might actually assist us in getting our messages to the correct recipients before we worry about the size of the emojis might actually be more useful. Baby steps for some of us. So one of the new features means that we can send emojis that are three times the size. Sure does. Excellent. So I can look a three times bigger idiot when it goes to the wrong recipient. Awesome. Ah, got to love Apple, haven't you? Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments, queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com or use the contact form on the website. Sad panda this week. We've got no new reviews on iTunes. Now, come on. We promised we'd read them out. So how about at least one? 
for next week. We could withhold the show, couldn't we? Mm, yeah. No, that's probably not a good <laughs> idea. Uh, anyway, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesSiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What's that smell? What smell? There is definitely a smell in here. Oh that, it's super glue. Super glue? What are you doing with it? Didn't you hear him talking about that new feature of iOS 10, Lift Awake? If he thinks he's having me up 10 times a night checking his email, he's got another thing coming. I'm gluing my illuminated backside to the bedside table. That's genius. Pass it over to me when you've finished.